When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me, their word, believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I'm um, thankful that we have an opportunity to engage you this morning. Lord, I pray that you will uh, speak clearly in uh, what just really, really could be a mess. Um, I pray that the Holy Spirit will clarify and uh, communicate 
really in spite of me and in, in spite of us, that he will give us an attentiveness and a, um, a focus and an engagement that's otherworldly. Lord, I pray in these next few minutes that we can just take in the gravity of the reality that we have the chance to sit and listen to your son speak to you about us. Just the realization that we have the chance to sit and enjoy and sort of disassemble and eat and dine on a conversation between creator and creator. Lord, I pray that you'll guard our hearts from um, treating these next few minutes as mundane and routine, that this won't be an ordinary Sunday, but that every opportunity we have to engage you will be um, arresting and important, and um, it'll be a real feast and a celebration, and at the same time be grave and serious. Lord, I pray that we'll have a sobriety about eternity. And then in these next few minutes that you will fuel that and feed that and develop that. Lord, also as a part of our time as we gather, I want to pray for another church in our area and pray for a church that's very close to us and dear to our hearts and Commerce Community Church and pray for David Ferguson and Ron Perrone. Lord, I pray for these guys that are leading this church. I pray for their marriage, marriages. I pray that you will... Uh, just put the gospel on display and how they love their wives and how their wives follow their husbands. Lord, I pray that their first uh, ministry is to their homes and families and that their ministry to your people is, is an overflow of that. Lord, I pray it's fueled by an enjoyment and satisfaction of the gospel. Thankful for the sweet relationship that we have with C3. Lord, we love you. We turn this time over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're in John chapter 17. Today, we are focusing... Hey, Ronnie, turn me back just a little bit. I feel like I'm having to whisper for uh, fear of... I'm going to be shouting later, so... I told the... uh, I told the band this morning as we were in the office there praying for our time, I said, sometimes when things are really difficult to communicate, I get louder. So I'm hoping that I don't get louder today trying to uh, communicate a really, really lofty reality. Um, We're continuing our study and our journey in John chapter 17. Really, it's an ocean that we've been swimming across for the last few weeks, and we will be swimming across unless the Lord returns first for the next few weeks. Or unless he takes one of us home, you or me. Um, I don't say that lightly. I, I, I'm serious about us treating this like it's our last opportunity to engage this ocean. So let's do that in these next few minutes. What we're going to be doing this morning is we're going to be looking at the fourth petition. There are five petitions in this prayer. Uh, it's an out loud prayer prayed on the eve of his cross. Uh, it has extreme gravity. I mean, it's... it's, it's um, if someone gave you the opportunity to, sh- to express five requests on the eve of your death, on the eve of your suffering that you knew somehow would, was in store, 
you would expect they would be five very, very important things. And that's why these last few weeks and these next few weeks are especially sober for us. This morning, we're going to be considering the fourth petition or the fourth request that is a request for oneness. Um, The focus passages are beginning in verse 20, and it goes through verse 23. I'm going to read those again so that we can kind of hone in on those. I do not ask for these only, speaking of the 11 that are sitting there with him at that point. The 12th, Judas has left the table. I don't ask for these 11 only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. It's 2,000 years later, but we're a product of the word that the apostles continued in. The church that they began, we're a product of that. So he's praying for us, as he says in verse 20, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. At least this Sunday and next, possibly even a third Sunday, we're going to be considering this fourth request for oneness. Um, I want to kind of draw out, I guess, the highlights. I'm not really going to unpack the passage, but just draw out the highlights because they're things that we're going to go back and sort of grab. First of all, that um, he's praying this for those who would believe in Christ. So that's not only us, but it's those who believed before us and those who will believe after us. This prayer happened at a moment in time, but it expands, you know, it, it spans many, many hundreds of years, thousands of years, potentially. He prayed for those who would believe in Christ, and he prayed that our oneness would be like the oneness that the Father and Son experience, and we'll see later that the Spirit is involved in as well. He's praying for something among his people that God has, and only God has. Third, in verse 21, it's the first of really two very important so that's. In verse 21, if you're one to write in your Bible, you may circle that so that in verse 21. We're going to come back to it. Fourth, he prays for oneness, not as like a pale notion or an airy thought, but full-on otherworldly, godlike oneness. And I'm going to explain that this morning. Godlike oneness that's very different than anything the world has to offer. And then fifth, in verse 23, there's another very important so that that we'll develop here in the next couple of weeks. Those are sort of the highlights of the passage, and there's some redundant thoughts there. Uh, There's some difficult thoughts. They seem to be sort of circular and sort of messy. And I'll use the word that you're going to hear frequently over the sermon this morning, sort of blurry. And I, I want to tell you right now that the sermon is going to be sort of blurry. Because if God's being mysterious and blurry, there's no way for me to hope to be linear. <laughs> so that's why this may be a challenging sermon. But the Holy Spirit, I trust, can sort it out for us. What I want to deal with first is what even is oneness. That's where we're going to go this morning. We're going to look at really, I'm going to say three things that are characteristic of the oneness of God so that we can understand what he's praying for in his people regarding oneness. We can't understand what he's asking for until we really consider what oneness means. I was curious what a Google search for oneness would come up with, 
and um, not for sermon content, trust me, <laughs> really to find out what, what won't be part of the sermon. Um, but right up toward the top of the list, I found Oneness University uh, that's, that I thought, man, that sounds cool, might be interesting. Um, turns out it's the world's leading spiritual school that helps millions of people awaken into a higher state of consciousness. That's not what oneness is biblically. Um, we're going to be dealing with a word that's not used very often. Um, it's going to be one that uh, hopefully we'll see needs to be developed and defined from the Bible. Uh, since this request is, is being made by God to God, we want to go to what God says oneness is to determine what it is. We don't want to go to the dictionary. We don't want to go to Google to try and define oneness. We want to see what God says oneness is. So we're going to look at his character of oneness or his or three aspects of his oneness to understand three aspects of our own. First, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. I'll tell you, too, that after the sermon, we're going to continue in song. Just some of y'all might be like, man, are we not going to sing anymore after last week? It's so loud. We're going to respond to the exposition of the word in song this morning. So um, the sermon is just placed a little bit different place in our corporate worship time. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 is a special verse. For the Jew, it's called the Shema. This verse is one that children, Jewish children learn at their earliest age. In fact, they say at their bedtime. In fact, it's often encouraged for folks to say, if they have an opportunity, as their last words. This verse is really the centerpiece of Judaism. And if we as Christians, really robust, biblical, full counsel Christians, want to enjoy the full counsel, then we can embrace this passage too, but we want to embrace it as it properly um, should mean. So this passage, I'll go ahead and read it. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The first thing I'm going to focus on this morning is that God's oneness is not a focus on his numerical singularness. Everybody got that? God's oneness is not a focus, or in this passage, is not an emphasis on his numerical singularness. Rather, it's about the dance. I'm going to deal with the dance in a minute, but first I want to deal with it. It's not focusing on his numerical singularness. See, this passage that's read at bedtimes are recited at bedtimes, that's quoted on deathbeds, the centerpiece of Judaism is really dealing with this passage, this one, as an adjective. That God is a singular God would be a way to translate it. He is one God. And it may seem like a small issue, but directly translated, it's a difficult passage. The Hebrew in the direct translation says, Hear, O Israel, as an imperative. Like, remember an imperative we've engaged recently? As like a, a command. Hear this. That's where the O comes from. O Israel, this is really important. Yahweh God, Yahweh one. Could go a number of different directions. You may not realize it. But it could, and it's all dependent on how we treat the word one. If you treat the word one as an adjective, then that means that he is one 
singular, numerical God. And that's the way Judaism treats this passage. Not completely, but primarily. It's also the way Islam treats God. But we want to consider it contextually and consider that this word one is actually an adverb meaning alone. Look at the next verse. It says, Hear, O Israel, hear the Lord our God. The Lord is one. Verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. It seems contextually that this word one is an adverb meaning alone. It may seem like a small nuance, but one direction leads you down the path where you will absolutely not ever consider a triune God. Talk with a Muslim, that's the biggest obstacle that they have to overcome. The reason I'm dealing with this complicated reality for Crosspoint Fellowship in 2011 in Greenville, the south side of Greenville, in the middle of the buckle of the Bible Belt, is because we're deploying to places like Kazakhstan or Jordan. Or we may know people who are Muslim or Jewish. And we want to know what our Bibles say and what they actually mean. And in context, this word we believe is an adverb meaning alone. So this could be translated that this God, the Lord, our God, is the Lord alone. A very different meaning than he is just one God. This passage rightly handled seems to be saying that our God is exclusive for Israel. Israel, you're about to cross over the dry Jordan... That's where Deuteronomy happens on Mount Nebo. Moses is writing these words down, looking over into the promised land. Hey, Israel, you're about to go across the Jordan on dry ground into Canaan. And the Canaanites, they worship all kind of gods. But you, you're going to worship me alone. That seems to be contextually what he's saying in contrast with the Canaanites who worship many gods. The reason I deal with this first, I didn't have to, and I really labored over whether I was even going to go here, is because as families or as individuals or as groups, we may deploy to far corners where we're engaging Muslims. And they may point at that verse and say, blocka, 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 I don't even want to hear about your triune God because your own scripture says that God is singular one. And you're like, oh, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. He's God alone. That's what that passage means contextually. Very different meaning. Or you may have folks that you walk with that are Jewish who cannot consider Christ as a God or God the Son. And this is a passage that's important to go to. So oneness isn't so much about singularness or numerical oneness. In this epic passage, which it is an epic passage, it seems to be about his exclusivity as Israel's God alone. Now let's turn to John to see if we can flesh out what oneness really is. As Christ is praying for, turn to John chapter 10, as Christ is praying for on the eve of his cross. John chapter 10. I'm going to read a series of passages. I'm going to just kind of read them um, kind of almost like a machine gun sort of engagement 
where we're going to look at little snapshots of oneness. Okay? Here's the first one. John chapter 10, verse 30. I and the Father are one. And this one is the same word that's used over there in the Shema. Now, that's the Hebrew version. This would be the Greek version. But this is used in the sense that it's intended over there in the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Not talking about a singular one, or he wouldn't have been able to say that, because we're talking about two distinct persons. I and the Father, as distinct, are one. If you read the Shema as one being an adjective, can you see why they wanted to kill Christ? Look at the next verse. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Can you see why they want to kill him? They go back to that first. No, that's an adjective. He is God singular. And I cannot even consider the notion of anything having to do with what seems to be triune or different persons within a Godhead. This is a snapshot of oneness. I and the Father are one. Look at chapter 14, verse 7. Here's the next snapshot. <clears throat> Thomas has just said to Christ, um, well, actually, Jesus has said to these guys, he said, you know, the where, you know the where, where I'm going. And Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In verse 7, he says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. That's oneness. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, because I and the Father are one. Because I'm in the Father and the Father's in me. Let's continue. So then Philip, being the knucklehead, that's a great picture of the kind of knucklehead that I would have been in that context. Uh, Jesus, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Phil, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? That's oneness. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Those are snapshots of oneness. Now look at verse 16. We introduce a new person, capital P, into this Godhead. I'll start in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. H is capitalized in your Bible because we're speaking about God the Spirit. To be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. That's referencing the third person of this one God. And look over in verse 26. You can see them all three together in one verse. It's a cool, cool picture in this verse. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, there's the, one of the persons of the Trinity, whom the Father, there's the second person, will send in my name. There's a third person of the Trinity. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Those are snapshots of oneness. And in John chapter 17, we read in verse 21, Jesus is praying not only for his 11, but praying for us that we may be one, even as Father, you are, uh, even that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That's oneness. 
that they also may be in us. And then in verse 23, at the end of verse 22, they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Those are pictures and snapshots of oneness. Everybody got that down? It's linear, isn't it? Not. It's just so compartmental and tidy. (laughs) I was so looking forward to going through that with y'all. Not. (laughs) I understand, man, it is the word that I will use over and over again this morning. Blurry. Oneness, as biblically defined, is blurry. I'm going to share something with you this morning that's really a treat for me to share. Um, It's never been shared in this sanctuary before. And it is really a foundational thing for Christianity. It's called the Athanasian Creed. The Athanasian Creed was written about the 6th century A.D. And the Athanasian Creed deals with the nature of the Trinity and really the blur The Athanasian Creed, a large part of it came from teachings from Augustine a couple of centuries earlier, and much of it is direct quotation from Augustine's book that was published or writings that were published in 415 A.D. called On the Trinity. It's, It's exciting for me to read this because this has never been, considering the irony that we're a Christian church, that Trinity is what defines us and makes us Christian that this foundational Trinitarian writing has never been read in this church in eight years. So it's exciting for me to share it this morning. So just sit back and listen. Don't try and make it linear because it's far from it. Whosoever will be saved. Got your attention? It's intended to get your attention. Whosoever will be saved before all things it is necessary that he hold the Catholic, meaning whole Christian, not, not denominational Catholic, the whole Christian, that's what that word meant, that ancient word, the Catholic faith, which faith except everyone do keep whole and undefiled without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. In other words, they're saying if you don't believe this, you're bound for hell. Got your attention? That we worship one God in Trinity. And Trinity and unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Ghost. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated. Remember St. Nicholas slapping Arius upside his head? He's not created. He always was. And the Holy Ghost uncreated. The Father unlimited, the Son unlimited, the Holy Ghost unlimited. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, the Holy Ghost eternal. And yet they are not three eternals, but one eternal. As also there are not three uncreated, nor three infinites, but one uncreated and one infinite. So likewise, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, and the Holy Ghost almighty, and yet they are not three almighties, but one almighty. Linear? 
So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Ghost is God. And yet they're not three gods, but one God. So likewise, the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, and the Holy Ghost is Lord. And yet not three lords, but one Lord. For like as we are compelled by the Christian verity to acknowledge every person by himself to be God and Lord, so are we forbidden by the Catholic religion to say there are three gods or three lords. The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made or created, but begotten. And the Holy Ghost is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. So there is one Father, not three fathers. One Son, not three sons. One Holy Ghost, not three Holy Ghosts. And in this trinity, none is before or after another. None is greater or less than another. But the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal. So that in all things, as aforesaid, the unity in trinity and the trinity in unity is to be worshipped. He therefore that will be saved, let him think thus of the trinity. (laughs) I love that. Everybody got that? Everybody take good notes on that and got that all cleared out, linear, got a nice little tidy outline? Not. The oneness of God is blurry. Oneness as defined by math is tidy. It's somewhere between zero and two. And it's easy for Islam or Judaism to say, no, that's the focus of our faith, this singular God. That's easy to get our hands around. This blurry stuff is more difficult. Oneness as defined by the nature of God is less about mathematical singularness and more about blurry inner involvement, interconnectedness, and union of the persons of the Godhead. There was a word for it in the ancient church. It's a word that we've considered as a church a few times before, and it's one that I enjoy going back to because it reminds me of the nature of God is the word perichoresis. It's where we get the word uh, dance comes from that. Choresis is where we get the word dance. And peri means around. So perichoresis would mean to dance around. And this word was used to describe the nature of the persons of the Trinity. Interpenetrating, interinvolved, interconnected, blurry, yet moving together in union and in unison. It's a great word to describe things like I'm in him and he's in me and he and I are one and we send the helper and he points to me and discloses all I've told to you. I like perichoresis because it captures something that's really hard to capture. The cover of our bulletins has a picture of some people dancing together and it's just sort of blurry. But yet you see a union. You see a movement together that's choreographed. It has a plan and it has a direction. And that's the nature of the oneness of God. It's blurry. There are very few places in our Bible where we see all three persons distinctly in the same setting. One of those places is in the baptism of Jesus. Listen to this passage. It's where we have just a moment where this blur sort of comes into focus. Just for a second, it comes into focus and we have a distinct picture of all three persons and then it goes blurry again. 
Listen to this really focused passage. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And then it goes blurry again. A moment of focus looking at the oneness of a very triune very difficult to get our head around God. It's usually blurry. It's usually dance-like, like a well-practiced dance team moving in perfect synchronicity and harmony as one beautiful unit. His oneness is not so much about singular, numerical monotheism, although we are monotheists. His oneness is about an appropriate, exclusive commitment to the one true, whole, blurry, inter-involved, interconnected, interpenetrating God. That's the first aspect and the most complicated. All right? So if you made it this far, you can kind of... The next two will be easier to get our head around. Secondly, the oneness of God deals with persons of a Godhead, a triune God that are equal in godness. They are equal in godness. Just like the thing that we read just a moment ago, this Athanasian creed that presented them as equal, none greater than the other. But yet they serve different roles in what we will call a functional hierarchy. In the way they express and serve, it looks like one may be subordinate to the other. But yet none is greater than the other. The persons of our one triune God have different and complementary roles, yet they're working toward the same end, the glory of God. Listen to these passages. You can turn there if you'd like. If you're already in John, they're not far away. John chapter 4, verse 34. Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. My priority is to do the will of the one who sent me. And my priority of work is to do his work. The thing I want you to see about this oneness of God has to do with the reality that the father sent the son. And the son went. The son obeyed and went where the father told him to go and did what the father told him to do. His very words, he tells us later, are not his own words, not his own authority, but the father's words and of the father's authority. The father sent the son and the son obeyed. The father sent the son with a message and the son brought that message. It looks like functional hierarchy and subordination. And the son asks the father, there's another key word, he asks the father to send the spirit and the father sent the spirit. John chapter 14, look at this. It's a passage we've looked at already, but I want to see it again. John chapter 14, verse 16. Jesus says, I will ask the father and he will give another helper. To be with you forever, speaking of the spirit of truth. 
And then in verse 26, that helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Son asked the Father to send the Spirit, and the Father sent the Spirit to testify to the Son. Although each person of the Trinity is fully God, none is greater than the other in Godness, yet they have different and distinct and what appears to be even subordinate roles. It's a functional hierarchy. Oneness serving in different roles. Okay, the third thing. We're going to come back to all this. Third thing has to do with oneness of God. The three persons of the Trinity, this one God, are fully God, yet they are somehow dependent on each other to be who they are. They're fully God, yet somehow they are dependent on each other to be who they are. Each of the persons of the Trinity identities are relative the other persons of the Trinity. Listen to this. The Father is not the Father without the Son. Any of you not have kids, but you refer to yourself as a father? You have to have a son or a daughter in order to be a father. So the father is not the father without the son. And the father's fatherness is dependent on the son's sonness. And the son is not the son without his father. And the spirit is not the spirit without his testifying, helping, illuminating work of son and father. Who he is is relative the other persons of the Trinity. He's defined relative the other persons of the Trinity. They are understood to be who they are relative the other persons of the Trinity. Oneness in being is relative others. Now, I feel like the hard work's over for this sermon. That's the airy, ethereal stuff. If you've been paying attention so far, you're probably like, man, that's informative. Um, and kind of heady and airy. I can't really grab any of it. Um, I'm thankful for it, but it's kind of impractical. Where we want to go in these next few minutes is see, to see why God is praying for oneness in his people. These things that we're seeing in him that look so airy and ethereal and hard to get our hands around, he's praying for on the eve of his cross in his people. So let's deal with the first one. God's oneness is not a focus on his numerical singularness. Rather, it's about the dance. What does that have to do with the people of God? What does that have to do with the church? It means he's not asking for numerical oneness in the people of God. I'm going to talk about denominations and lots of churches in a minute. He's not asking for numerical oneness in the people of God, but that we join the dance with him that we're caught up in the dance with him and with each other. As the oneness of God has more to do with his nature and essence as three in one, inter-involved, interconnected, interpenetrating, in dance-like form, so it is to be with his people. Oneness for his church focuses on this inter-involvement, interconnected, interpenetration, dance-like movement for his people. What he's praying for here is a blurry union of many parts, and you're those parts. 
This thing that we're looking at him and reading the Athanasian Creed and going, yeah, that's a mess. That's what he's praying for in us. A blurry mess that's moving in one direction together for the glory of God. Because we know in the Trinity, it's no mess at all. But it's well-planned and well-coordinated. He's praying for a blurry union of parts so that it looks like and is moving as one organism. He's asking for something that y'all have got to know that this doesn't come naturally. He's asking for something that just doesn't materialize on its own, this oneness, this dance. It would be like seven or eight people getting out on a dance floor and say, let's move as one. Yet they've never practiced or rehearsed together. They have no plan or direction. It ain't going to happen. I don't care what kind of dancers they are as individuals. It's going to be a mess. It's going to be like Soul Train. Everybody got their own thing going in different areas of the dance floor. But they're not moving together. (laughs) He's asking for something that does not come naturally, something that has to be the result of not only a divine request, but something that will have to be achieved by a divine work, and that work is the cross. For sinful people to become a reflection of a holy triune God, something crazy's got to happen, and that crazy thing that happens is called the cross. Now, application of this. I have two applications. This is not the only application. It's two things that I think are appropriate application points of this thing that God is praying that we be caught up in the dance. First, things like small group matter. Things like corporate worship times matter. Man, it is a lie of Satan to trivialize and routineize, I'm making up words, and mundaneize things like small group or corporate worship gatherings. He loves to make these things where the people of God are interpenetrating, interinvolved, interconnected, and involved in each other's lives look like it's just routine and trivial and unnecessary. He loves to do that. But I'm telling you, things like small group matter. It will always be easy to pass on corporate gatherings and small group gatherings. It will always be easy. And Satan will always give you some easy excuses. But for me, the things that are easiest in my life are usually, if not always, sin. Really. Things like small group matter. If you see corporate and small group gatherings as a reflection of the character of God instead of just somebody checking roll on you, Are you getting your church on or getting your check in the block? If you see you're showing up at corporate gatherings or small group gatherings as a reflection of the character of God, then you're like, I'm not bleeding. I'm there. You're like, I don't think I have TB. I don't think I'm contagious. I'm there. Am I breathing? I'm there. Unless something crazy has kept me out of town or something like that. I'm there because this puts the character of God on display. I want to be there. I want to be in the dance. Because it's not soul train. I'm not out on one side of the dance floor working it. I'm engaging the people of God in this blurry dance. It's moving in one direction that puts the nature and character of God on display. Ephesians 4 verse 25 says that we are members of one another. That's a picture of the oneness of the people of God as a reflection of the character of the oneness of the God, of our God. 
You're dancing if you're praying for what's going on in someone else's life and they're praying for what's going on in your life. Those sort of things happen in small group. You know what? It always feels sort of trivial. I'm confessing. It always seems sort of routine and unimpressive. When I'm sitting in somebody's den with about 8, 10, 12 other people and somebody says, man, I got this going on. You're like, okay, well, let's pray about it. That's Satan that makes it feel unimpressive and trivial and unnecessary. Because when we bow our heads and we step into the throne room and bring it before the living God, nothing, nothing trivial is going to happen. Something awesome is going to happen. But Satan says, ah, <laughs> that's just a small group. You stay home and dance. You don't need to be part of that. You're dancing when you weep with others who weep and they with you. That happens in small group settings and in corporate worship gatherings. That happens there. You're dancing if their kids come to you for a brownie and your kids go to them for Kool-Aid. If you're in small group, you know what I'm talking about. Patrick Fields is laughing up here because he knows what I'm talking about. You're caught up in the dance when their kids are sitting in your lap and your kids are running around at their feet. That's the dance. And it will always look trivial and unimpressive. But that's the ordained dance that we're to be part of. That's what he's praying for on the eve of his cross, that the people of God would be caught up in this little ordinary, mundane, routine dance. Because it's none of those things when it's the people of God. We're walking in what he prayed for on the eve of his cross. Here's another application. If oneness isn't emphasizing numerical singularness, then having 98 Christian churches in Greenville isn't such a heartbreak. Eight years ago, whatever it was, when Christy, seven and a half years ago, when Christy and I moved here, we came as a church planner. And we're looking at the Chamber of Commerce website, and we're seeing 98 Christian churches in Greenville, and we're like, that's not a good business plan. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying church is a business at all, but think about it for a minute. If you're going to open a dry cleaners, are you going to open a dry cleaners in a, a town of 25,000 people that has 95 dry cleaners? <laughs> you better be ready to eat light. Lots of top ramen. I mean, seriously, think about it. We're looking at this website going, man, 98 Christian churches in Greenville. And then when we're moving here, we've moved here and we're hearing stories about the reason there are 98 Christian churches in Greenville is not exclusively, but in large part due to division. Church fights, church splits. This church happened because this church split and there's still angst between these two churches. And we're like, man, this is heartbreaking. If you look around just even in Greenville on the, on the website, or if you look around physically in Greenville, you see lots of de- denominations too. Not just many church buildings, but you see lots of denominations. But if we understand oneness, our hearts don't have to be broken over 98 Christian churches. If we understand oneness to not mean numerical singularness, then the crime is not many churches. And the crime is not even many denominations. The crime is divisiveness and competitiveness between churches. That's criminal. Could we somehow be with 97 other Christian churches? One? If we understand biblical oneness, could we be? 
seeds of hope came for me from the book of Galatians. Don't turn there. Just listen to this. I'm going to refer to a passage that I was reading years ago. It's where I began to pray for other churches on Sunday mornings when we gathered corporately. I was reading this in Galatians chapter 1, the entry verses. You know, entry verses to, to these books, these letters in the New Testament. A lot of times you think, oh, I'm jump, jump on to verse 4. That's where the real content starts. Well, verse 2 of Galatians says, to the churches in Galatia. And like the churches in Galatia, I'm thinking, wait a second. There's more than one church in Galatia. There's plural churches in Galatia. And I bet they're different. Were they different denominations? Ah, the church is pretty undeveloped at that point. I don't think they necessarily had those labels. I don't know, though. But there's more than one church, yet that many churches, or apparently more than one church in Galatia, gets one letter and hopefully preaches the same message. That having more than one church in Galatia is not criminal. Like having persons in our triune God is not somehow defying oneness. In fact, it can fulfill oneness if we're part of the dance. There's the potential for 98 Christian churches in Greenville to truly experience oneness if we're truly cheering for each other. This may be the last Sunday that some of you are at Crosspoint. That's okay. You might be a visitor. Here you hear it for your first Sunday and your last. Wherever you land, beg for them to pray and beg for God's glory in the other churches in Greenville. Wherever you land, talk to that pastor, talk to that leadership, and beg for them to be genuine about praying for God's greatness in the other churches in Greenville. Maybe that's where it starts. Maybe we don't have to have, to have a church-wide where all the churches in Greenville get together and have this community-wide program. Maybe we just have to beg for God's greatness in each other's churches. That there's no seating capacity because people are being discipled and enjoying Christ in each other's churches. Maybe that's oneness. We could be one in Greenville, 98 Christian churches, and be faithful. He prayed that we would be in the dance. That's what he prayed for on the eve of his cross. Secondly, dealing with the oneness of God, equal in godness, yet with different roles, serving in a functional hierarchy. Again, you're looking at that saying, well, I don't really know where that has purchase. That's interesting, but I don't know what that has to do with me. It has everything to do with you. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. <clears throat> As you're turning there, I'm going to share a passage with you from Matthew chapter 19. It's sort of a, I'm setting the stage for what I'm going to show you in Ephesians chapter 5. Listen to this in Matthew chapter 19. Jesus said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Not singular oneness. We don't become Siamese twins walking around stuck to each other. The emphasis on oneness there is in keeping with the spirit of oneness over in the Shema. It's not a numerical oneness thing. The two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. As husband and wife become one, not in a numerical sense, but in a perichoretic sense. 
Christy loves to dance. We should do that more often given what our marriage is supposed to illustrate. Don't hold me to that. (laughs) That wasn't in my notes. I just kind of made that public commitment out loud. Extemporaneous. It always gets you in trouble. As a husband and wife become one, not in a numerical sense, but in a perichoritic sense, then they as equals, hear this, serve in functionally different roles that may appear subordinate. You see where I'm going with this? Listen to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Start right there. Now, look at verse 23. More husbands first. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Okay, functional role. The husband is the head of the wife. Is the husband, are, are the husband and wife equals? Yes. Are the father and son and the spirit equals? Yes. Do they serve in functionally different roles? Yes. The father sent the son and the son goes. The husband is the head of the wife. Look at verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now down to verse 24. For as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. The wife is to follow her husband. The husband is to lead his wife and the wife is to follow her husband. When a man and woman as equals do this, the man leads the wife and the wife follows, guess what you do, husband and wife? You put the nature of God on display. You walk in the oneness that he prayed for in John chapter 17, that they may be one even as we are one. Isn't that a scandal that you can do that on Tuesday at home? That you can show your kids what God looks like? Wives, if it's just unthinkable for you, the notion of submitting to that joker, consider it as an act of worship. As an act of worship, I'm going to submit to that joker because it's going to put the gospel on display for my kids and my friends and my family and everybody that knows me. It's going to be evangelism. People say, man, something's going on there. And husbands loving their wives like that Put the gospel on display. The world thinks it's a mockery. <laughs> the world, is, I mean, it's easy target. I understand. It's a picture, though, of the character and nature of God, where he says, I pray that they may be one, even as we are one, that they may be perfectly one. And we're not just talking about husbands and wives either. What does this have to do with the people of God as a church corporately? Well, corporately, you're made up of families, husbands and wives, not exclusively, but largely. But here's a picture of it corporately. As an elder serves the church as an equal. Do you know that? Do you know that I'm an equal with you? I don't care if you're six years old. That we're equals. Do you understand that? Do you believe that? (laughs) It might add a whole new approachability with me and Steve and Brad and Scott. If you saw us as equals. Available Equals, knowing that we are equals, yet we serve in different capacities. As an elder is an, e- is, is an equal of the church, he's also appointed to lead the church, and the church is appointed to follow that equal. 
And it puts the character of God on display. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Here's that word again. For they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. When a husband leads and loves his wife well and she follows well, they're putting the oneness of God on display. And when a church follows God's loving yet frail leadership, Paul Asterben, <laughs> right? He came out last week just for a little bit, didn't he? When a church follows God's loving yet frail leadership, they're putting the nature of God on display. That gives me goosebumps to think about that, that we are showing Greenville and our families and our friends what God looks like. (laughs) What a scandal that he lets us be part of that. He prayed that we would walk in functionally different roles faithfully as a reflection of his oneness. See how practical that is? It's not airy and ethereal. It's right here. It's in my den. It's on the south side of town when we gather corporately. It's what we say over dinner in front of our kids about our leadership at church. You see that? The third thing we dealt with, the oneness of God, three persons in the Trinity, all fully God, somehow dependent on each other to be who they are. He's asking here in John 17 that we would be dependent on him and each other to become who we truly are. I've thrown out some scary words this morning, like submit, dependent. Who wants to be dependent? Anybody tell their kids, kids, I want you guys to grow up to be the most needy, dependent things you could possibly be. I mean, even as Americans, we don't celebrate Dependence Day. Seriously, think about it. Man, it's the American way. Independence is the American way. Man, I want to stand on my own two feet. I want to pull my bootstraps up. I'm an island. I'm the captain of my own ship. Captain of my own soul. Dependence is not necessarily something that's interesting or appealing, but it's what Christ is praying for in his people right here. As the Father is not the Father without the Son... And the Son is not the Son without the Father. The McGraws are not fully who we're called to be without you. You see why I'm jealous for your being involved in the dance? It's a little bit self-serving because I don't come into the fullness of who I am without you. Guess what? You don't either. You don't come into the fullness of who you are in the corner of the dance floor. You are defined relative the others. We come into the fullness of who we are relative you. Let's think about Henry David Thoreau. This dude, he was Darwinist. I mean, he, an amazing writer. Uh, he went to live on Walden Pond for two years and just by himself just withdrew from everything. And there's kind of this notion that I want to go off and find myself. So you go into hiding somewhere in a cave or a hut and try and find yourself. And the reality is you don't find yourself relative nobody. You are defined relative the other people of God. Henry David Thoreau didn't find himself out there. He found a whole new idol. And that idol was nature and himself. We come into the fullness of who we are. We are defined relative each other. 
insert anybody's last name that's part of this body, that family comes into the fullness of who they are relative, insert another family's name relative to that family. You aren't fully who you're supposed to be apart from this family being part of your life. Just like the father is not the father without the son. And the son is not the son without the father. That's oneness. Man, I know what Satan does with this one. Satan does numbers on this one. He loves to give people fear over being known and knowing. If they get to know me and they know how really selfish I can be or, or whatever, they'll be done with me. That might be the world, but that's not supposed to be the church. That fear is from Satan. The fear that says, I can't ask anybody to help me. I'm supposed to be independent. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not supposed to be needy. Yes, you are. Remember, it's what he prayed for. Satan says, no, you don't need anybody. In fact, be the martyr. That's what Satan says. Be the martyr. Then you have somebody else to blame. Not realizing that those people that you're often blaming are the people that are poised, ready to be part of your life. Because they're dependent on you. As you're dependent on them. That's what he prays for here in John, John chapter 17. It's not airy and ethereal. It's Thursday. When your life is a train wreck and you need some help. And you call somebody else in the body, I need some help, it's urgent. You come into the fullness of who you are relative to the other people of God. That's what he prayed for in John chapter 17. He prayed for an interdependence among his people that would reflect his oneness. He's asking on the eve of his cross, not for singular numerical oneness in his people, but for a blurry dance. He's asking for a blurry dance with him and with each other. He's asking on the eve of his cross that we would walk faithfully in our different roles, leading and following well as a reflection of his different roles. And he's asking that we would be dependent on him and each other to be who we truly are. It's a great prayer. <laughs> it's awesome when you really consider it. And the next morning, on into mid-afternoon, and then on the next Sunday morn, he earned that oneness. It's not something that we have to create. It's already been earned. We maintain it. That's what we're going to look at next week. Let me pray. Lord God, I pray in these next few minutes that we can sing our heart out, our hearts out about the greatness of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. That we can sing about your unity and, it, and yet your different roles. That we can sing about your equality and at the same time sing about a father sending a son and a son obeying and going. And a son asking for a, a helper and a father sending a helper to testify to a son. <coughs> Lord, I pray in these next few minutes that we can sing about a God who is defined relative to the other persons of the Godhead. 
Lord, I pray in all those things that we can see purchase and that we can see connection with Thursday and with our cell phone when we're in a crisis and we've got gobs of numbers in there. Gobs of people that will only come into the fullness of who they are relative my phone call. Lord, I pray that you will keep us away from the corners of the dance floor. That you'll gather us up into this sweet union of putting you on display. It's a crazy scandal that we can show Greenville and show our families and show each other even what you look like in the dailiness of today. The dailiness of small group, the dailiness of life with the people of God. Lord, I pray that the Spirit will work this in us. Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Luke twenty-two eighteen. For I tell you, Jesus speaking, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. These last three messages have, for me and I think for all of us, heightened the awareness and the urgency of what's happening here when we gather. That we're washed and sanctified and that we're sanctified to be sent and that we're sent out of oneness. We're not randomly sent. We're not randomly sanctified. We're not uh, wondering how that happens. There is a design. And we are sanctified by the word. His word is truth. We are sent, and we're not randomly sent. We're sent out of oneness. And so that has heightened the awareness for what happens here. And I was wondering, what does he mean when he says this little phrase that's on the communion table? Do this in remembrance of me. What's he getting at? What is Jesus really saying? What's behind that? And as I'm wondering what he's thinking, I think he's looking at some dudes who are just starting to clue in on how otherworldly this really is, on how ethereal it is, blurry, and they're starting to embrace it and maybe leaving the practical, maybe thinking not so much that this has all been about him making us better fishermen, or this has not really been about how we're going to be good teachers because he showed us how to teach, or are the tricks going to go with him, or are we going to be able to do them too? And it's, they're starting to clue, and we know they haven't gotten it yet, and so I, I think Jesus is burdened. You're going to need to remember some things. You're going to rem- need to remember one thing. Because they just came from the Mount of Transfiguration where Peter, James, and John are freaked out by the fact that Jesus is talking with Moses and Elijah. Um, Peter is looking saying, please tell me that's not two dead men speaking to Jesus. I'm a little freaked out by the otherworldliness of what's happening in front of us. And God says, Jesus is God. And Peter says, he's, I guess the Baptist comes out in him. Let's build a building. Peter, hush. This is not about that. And so I, I hear Jesus saying, do this in remembrance of me. 
that this is what you'll need to make sense of the otherworldliness, the ethereal, the fuzzy. This is what you'll need. And so for me and my family, Ben's alluded to it for three weeks in a row now, is that this bread and this juice is as real and as true and as clear and as otherworldly as it gets for me. This is as real and as true and as otherworldly as it gets for you and me. And so I would caution us, because this is where I have to caution myself, that we don't come to this table going, oh, yeah, it's time to do that again, because that's what we do. And I don't really understand it, but, you know, it's just what we do. And we do it every week, and I don't really know why, but that is thinking of it practically. How is this going to help me again to do this again? Instead of thinking, my life doesn't make sense apart from remembering that it's finished, it's complete, it's real, and I'm about to eat it. That's why we do it every week. It's because Jesus looks at these dudes and says, boys, you're going to need to remember something. You're going to need the reminder. You're going to need this because it's the only way to make sense of the rest of it. And it's the only thing that you can trust, and it's the only thing that's really real. And so we come to this table to eat, body broken for us, accomplished for us, not, not trying to accomplish anything, but trusting in his accomplishment. Would you pray with me? Father, um, I'm so grateful for your word. I'm so grateful for your oneness. I'm grateful for your sending for your movement, for the blur. And I'm thankful for your heart this morning saying, remember me, remember what I've accomplished, proclaim this death until I come back. That's what I'm thankful for. I'm thankful for the sense that this makes to us as believers. And I pray that we would enjoy this meal, remembering that and Enjoy it in faith. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. When Jesus was talking to the disciples, he wasn't saying, do this and remember the good times. And this is sad because I'm leaving you. He's saying, remember what's being accomplished by me. And so the body of Christ broken for you, remember what's been accomplished. Take and eat. Before we go, I'm going to close this in prayer in just a minute. But I want to remind everybody we have a meeting up here. For Cross Point members only at five tonight. Uh, that meeting will last about 20 minutes. It's not going to, shouldn't be a very long meeting, but there won't be any child care. So if somebody from every household could be here, that would be, uh, be optimal. So five o'clock in here tonight, and um, we'll, we'll see everybody then. I'm going to close this in prayer, and then you'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for uh, your design for calling Ben and Christy here several years ago, and um, for what you've gathered here around them and us, for your glory and for your namesake. Uh, Thank you for grace, for patience with each other, and for showing us what you look like, and showing us your character, and how we move and and move together. Uh, Father, help us. Spirit, we we pray that you would continually 
and lighten our hearts to help us do that and stay out of the way. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.